I was I was doubly impressed because those guys are basses and they were singing all the parts. So I guess in whatever else goes on, I can announce my resignation from the choir this morning. And so uh, two passages this morning. Where the first will be Psalm 51, the one that we will read, and then very quickly uh, after we're seated, we will turn to Second Samuel chapter number 11. Last week, after a little more than a year, we finished up with the book of Hebrews, and I I got asked if I was going to do some kind of a recap of it, and I had said no, but I have since rethought that, and probably in the not-too-distant future, I think it may may be to our benefit uh, to kind of come back and recover that. But for now, I wanted to mention a while back that I wanted to give some attention to the subject matter of forgiveness. It is one of the most difficult things for us to grasp in the sense of reconciling our emotions and our intellect. Um, It is one of the most demanding doctrines of the Bible. All human relationships with God hinge upon it as do all human relationships with each other hinge upon it. And so it is of tremendous importance to think biblically about the subject matter of forgiveness. Not that I have a corner on the mastering the subject matter, as I hope is not evident this morning, but our time together will be given to thinking about forgiveness from perhaps a different perspective than we might be accustomed to. I've actually titled, if you look online later, that the message is, what not to expect from forgiveness. That's perhaps a little rushed of an outline. But it is thinking, we are going to this morning think about forgiveness from perhaps a different point of view than we might normally think about forgiveness. Let's go ahead and stand. And again, we will begin by reading the entirety of the 51st Psalm this morning. And then we will return to that Psalm a little bit later in the message. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, 
Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure and design. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. And let's pray. Father, I pray for your help this morning that, first of all, that I would not say anything contrary to what you mean and what you say when you have spoken to us. Then I pray that you would straighten our perspective, expand our understanding, help us to think rightly and properly again about you and about ourselves. I pray your ministry to your people through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. And so again, we will come back soon enough to Psalm 51, but let me ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Of course, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 are the chapters that provide for us the reason for Psalm number 51. Just a couple of things while you're turning. I'm not going to read all of chapter 11 and 12 of Second Samuel. I, uh, operating on the assumption that we all have at least a passing enough familiarity with the incident between David and Bathsheba to know what I'm talking about. And the account that is given is, of course, the inspired word of the Lord to us. This is God telling us what he wants to know and how he wants us to know it. It does not answer the questions that we might bring to it with our modern perspective. And I just want to take a second and illustrate a little bit what I'm talking about. For instance... The text does not in any way explain to us whether or not Bathsheba bears any blame for her part in this. Is she simply a victim? Is she a willing participant? Is this some form of rape? Or is it an act of adultery? We do know that Bathsheba comes from a very prominent Family, which is one of the reasons that she was in fairly close proximity to King David. She wasn't a peasant girl. Her grandfather was actually one of David's counselors, Ahithophel. And I think if we keep that in mind, we will have some understanding, although the Bible doesn't state it as such why Ahithophel said some of the things he later said and why he took some of the positions he later took. But we see that relationship in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 34. I will not have you turn to it. Her father was 
one of David's mighty men. So this is a young lady, and she is probably realistically about half of David's age when this happens. This is a young lady of some prominence in her own right who lived in the world of the political court. But again, we we can read the account of what she was doing and how it was viewed, and we can ask all those questions, but the text simply does not address them. The entirety of the incident, folks, is told. The entirety of the incident is told. As what David did and how it impacted the Lord. Another question that is occasionally broached is whether or not Uriah had any part to play in this. What kind of husband was he and would it matter what kind of husband he was? What if he had simply gone home and spent the evenings with his wife rather than take what to him was the moral high ground? But again, I think we need to be careful there and the Old Testament perspective, the perspective of the law was that a military soldier really was designed to be devoted to be a military soldier and not to have much to do with his wife at that time, Exodus 19.15, Deuteronomy 23.9. And the Bible never records for us any of the things that are such a prevalent part of our culture, things like Victim impact statements. No, no reporter has a microphone to ask Bathsheba how she feels about what happened. Nor is there an investigative reporter doing a story on David and other behind-the-doors incidents in the kingdom. Again, if you were looking for those kinds of things, and I do think there's obviously connection, Ahithophel proves himself no friend of King David. Which probably only reinforces the idea that he views David as the perpetrator. But for our purposes, folks, and by that I mean from the purposes of the Lord's perspective, David is the only perpetrator. And David views himself as the only perpetrator. So whatever else we might want to know about the text and the story, we must understand the story as this. David is a man who finally, painfully, we will see at long last, is brought to admitting to his solitary role in what happened. The kind of things that often appeal to us, and I hope not to you individually, but what about victim impact statements and what about whether or not Bathsheba was responsible. They just do not ever seem to interest God. And we want to understand something, folks. I think there are far-ranging consequences to this because we live in a world in which almost wholeheartedly as a society, we are habitually, perpetually looking for reasons to excuse people from being responsible for their actions. One of the latest cultural dimensions of that being student loan forgiveness. That somehow, magically, mystically, you're no longer responsible for the obligations you incur. That's nothing new. We've been shirking our obligations and responsibilities 
for generations now, denying responsibility, creating an entire wave of people who look to other people to pay their bills, protect their property, provide for their well-being. Almost then, this comes as the greatest cataclysmic shock of all time to discover that one of these days, it's going to be that person and God, and there will be no mitigating factors. And that is the Bible perspective. So with that, let's turn our attention. And again, I'm going to read selected portions, but not the entirety of what unfolds in chapter 11 and 12. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, its entirety, verses 1 through 27, we have the record of David's heinous sin. At the point that we read this, David is probably in the middle of his reign. He's about 50 years of age, old enough to know better. He reigns for 40 years. He dies when he's 70. So this comes right about the middle of his tenure, 20 years leading up to this moment of crisis, 20 years down the back side of it. And he looks out his window at a time when kings had gone forth to war and he sees this young woman and he sends for her and he impregnates her. The Hebrew account, folks, the Hebrew language is brief and brutal. He saw her, he took her, He slept with her. Lust reigns. And being the king, there is no constraint upon his desire. Upon the discovery that she is with child, David goes to extraordinary lengths. Not to protect her, but to protect himself from his conduct. And so he sends orders that her husband is to be put on leave and brought home in the hopes that he will spend the night with his wife and this will provide a convenient cover for how she came to be with child. Finding that unsuccessful, David then plies the man with liquor in the tried and true hopes that alcohol will break down his moral defenses. Chapter 11, verse 13. And yet even in his drunkenness, Uriah is more honorable than his king. And still unsuccessful, David resorts to ordering this man's execution at the hand of God's sworn enemies, the Ammonites. Verses 14 through 17. And finally then, at long last, upon receiving the news that Uriah the Hittite has died in battle, in verses 18 through 25, David waxes eloquent that sometimes collateral damage is the unfortunate consequence of righteous war. And then after a suitable period of mourning in verses 26 and 27, he marries Bathsheba and legitimizes the entirety of his conduct. 
And all of this, of course, unfolds over a period of months because we are brought privy to the moment of conception and the interval and passage of time until the baby is born and the baby is ultimately killed. And the man who we, by the way, in many instances rightly think as the standard bearer of devotion and dedication now becomes the standard bearer of depravity. Lust, deceit, treachery, murder, selfishness. These are the attributes of a depraved human being that drip from the pages of Second Samuel 11. And then following that folds after the account of David's heinous sin is God's horrific judgment. There is an ominous black cloud at the end of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Without trying to be funny, because it's not funny, but what's being described to us there in the Hebrew is actually a physical reaction. The thing that David did made God's eyes twitch. He was livid. Livid. And so the Lord now has something to say to David and he says it as he is inclined to do through his prophet, Nathan. Who comes and in verses 1-6 through six of 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells David a story setting the stage. There is a man, King David, he is so very rich. He has so much. But he has a neighbor who has so very little. Just one little sheep. Can't even really count it as sheep, it's the family pet. The kids play with it in the backyard, but when the rich man had company, rather than butcher one of his multitudes of sheep, he went over and stole his neighbor's pet sheep and killed it. David is rightly angered at which point in time. Chapter 12 and verse number 7, the condemnation is pronounced, Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. We do not know the tone or the frame or the mentality with which Nathan said that. Frequently it is presented as being harsh and judgmental. I personally wonder if it's not broken hearted. David, how can this be you? And God begins by talking to David about all that he had done for him. Verse number 7. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. Remember that? You were just, you're just a teenage shepherd boy. I made you the king. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul some of the most invigorating stories in the Old Testament are David and Saul and the way that God delivered him. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house. He was the king. I took it from him. 
I gave it to you. And thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah the kingdom. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. If that wasn't enough, I'd have been happy to give you more. I took you from anonymity and made you famous. I took you from obscurity and made you well known. I took you from being a shepherd and made you a king. I delivered you miraculously. I gave you women and money and status and position. And if that hadn't been enough, I would have been happy, so happy to do even more for you. And then in verse number 9 begins the indictment. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? How dare you hold my word in contempt? I commanded no adultery. I commanded you not to multiply wives. And you have held my words in contempt. And you've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. It was the sword of an Ammonite, but you're the murderer. And you have taken his wife, has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. You made an unholy alliance with an unholy people to kill a holy man to defend your unholy action. And then in verses 10 through 14, the judgments. What will be the consequences? Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said, <clears throat> I have sinned before the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So here is the Lord's response. We're nine months in, thereabouts. All of this intrigue. David sees Bathsheba, takes her, impregnates her. The child is developing in her womb. David is calculating how to cover this up, orchestrating the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Now she is great with child, and the Lord sends Nathan. The sword will never leave the dynasty. And I would just point out to you folks to remember that verse as you're reading in your devotional reading 
through First and Second Kings in the book of Chronicles and the turmoil that comes to the house of David, the sword will never depart. And I will raise up evil out of your own house, chapter 12 and verse number 11. 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, and 18 are occupied with the rebellion of Absalom, David's own son. And I will publicly humiliate you, although you did this in private. You tried to engage in the great cover-up, but I will not cover this up. 2 Samuel 16, 22. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And by the way, would ask you not to turn to it and read the whole passage right now. But if you want to know who the guy was that gave that advice, you know. His Bathsheba's grandpa, Ahithophel. What should we do? Here's what we should do. We should put a tent up there, right up on top of the roof where everybody can see what's happening. Gather up all of David's wives and we'll send his boy Absalom in there to sleep with his wives. David did it in secret, but there will be no more secrets. And of course, in verses 15 through 23 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, there is the birth and almost immediate death of the child. And yet, folks, and yet, David is forgiven. David is forgiven. I will come back to this later, but you'll notice Verse number 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Now we will come back to that, but the idea of putting away literally means passed off. The word itself is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. In Exodus 12.12, God announced that he would pass through the land and here God says through the prophet Nathan to David your sin has been passed through it has been moved from one place to another and the nature of David's forgiveness folks is this that he gets to live you will not die now let me ask you a question Is that real forgiveness? Would that count as real forgiveness to us? Because doesn't forgiveness, I mean, right, isn't isn't it just this kind of forgetting and forgiving and forgetting? And this kind of, we'll just pretend that it never happened? Now, to be sure, folks, the things that David experiences, you know, 
we come to this passage and we go, well, there are always consequences. And I wouldn't fight with that. There are always consequences. But these are not just consequences. All babies that are born out of wedlock don't die. All households that experience marital infidelity don't spend the rest of the family history with knives in their hands. There's a dimension to this that transcends because of David's exalted role as the king of Israel and because of his place as the representative of the messianic kingdom, the only real worthy one to be the king. But if you and I were on the receiving end of some kind of direct word from the Lord like that, that went, I'm going to forgive you. And you are really forgiven. But here's what's going to happen. You're forgiven. You live. But here's what's going to happen. What would our response to that be? And that's one of the reasons, folks, that Psalm 51 is not only beautiful but valuable to us. What is a good response? Psalm 51 really only, I don't want to say works, but Psalm 51, its beauty and its spiritual depth, folks, is only comprehended as we read it right next to 2 Samuel 12 where God is walking through what's going to happen in David's family, the sword will always be there. Private activity will now result in public humiliation. The only true innocent, the only one who could... whose whose conduct could never be questioned in any way, the baby is dead. What would the right response be? Which brings us then to Psalm 51, David's heart-wrenching confession, his heinous sin, his horrific judgment, his heart-wrenching confession. In verses 1 through 3, he admits and confesses his guilt before God. He does not fault Uriah. He does not fault Bathsheba. He does not broach the question that all of us want to know the answer to. What in the world was a young woman doing taking a bath in such a way that she could be seen publicly? There is but one thing, the full, complete admission of guilt. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. I have rebelled. That's the idea. I have rebelled. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, my selfish sin. a sin that cared nothing for others, a sin that violated this monumental pillar of the law to love my neighbor. I loved only me, 
Selfish, selfish David. Cleanse me from my sin. My guilt is always here. Nine months into all external visible appearances, David lived as David the king, conducting kingdom business. But inwardly, David was perpetually racked with guilt. And in verses 4 through 6, David frames his guilt as an offense against God, against you and you only have I sinned. He is not denying for a moment, folks, the sinfulness against Bathsheba or Uriah or the family. That's not his point. He is laying himself bare before God. I have sinned against you. And I want to make sure, if I could paraphrase it, verses 4 through 6, against thee, the only have I sinned, done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David is just laying it all out. That his sin is against God. That his sin flows out of his sinful nature. That's what he means there. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not suggesting that his birth is questionable. He's just pointing out that his birth is sinful. In other words, folks, David is doing something what people absolutely refuse to do for the most part. And that is look themselves in the mirror and go, the reason I sin is because I am a sinner by nature. Instead, we tend to look in the mirror and go, I would not have done this, but you would make me. And that is why David says to God, so that you might be in the clear when you render your judgments. I confess that my sin is against you and you only, so that in those judgments, now let's again, let's remember what they were. The sword is never leaving, and the baby is dying, and the humiliation is public. Yeah, all that stuff, I deserve it. I deserve it. David is not, as human beings are inclined to do, trying to exonerate himself. Well, I was under a lot of pressure at work. And you know, she was naked. And you know, she was attractive. Just, it's my fault. I take it. I'm getting what I deserve. And I just want to be clear about this before you, Lord. You want inward truth. And I just want this to be as true of me as is humanly possible. That anything I experience, I'm getting only what is right. You have not been too harsh on me. You have not been unfair to me. You are not being unkind to me. How could you do this to me after all the faithfulness I've done for you? No, no, that is not David. 
And in verses 7 through 10, what David seeks is not an undoing of the judgment. This again, folks, is one of the beauties and the marvels of the 51st Psalm in light of 2 Samuel 12. Now, Lord, having having laid out my heart before you and taking full responsibility for my sin, could we not maybe... Could we not maybe not scale back the household brutality? Now, there's no doubt, folks, that David spent a week laying on his face asking for the life of the child. But there's equally no doubt that when he perceived that the child had died, his response was not, boy, that God is just such a mean bully at the end of the day. And so verses 7 through 10, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joint gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. David seeks pardon and restoration to fellowship with God. This to him is the single biggest driving factor. Not the kingdom. Not the economy, but his restoration to fellowship with God. Just as he has sinned against God so he can be cleansed only by God. So that the God I've sinned against is the only one who can purge me. And the only one who can clean me. And the only one who can restore to me the joy of my salvation what an amazing, and by the way, folks, David is, in, in that moment in 2 Samuel 11, he is as ugly as a human being can possibly be. But he is also as stellar as a human being can be. David, we'll talk about this in, in the not-too-distant future, David, perhaps more than any of the other Old Testament writers, brings a completely New Testament perspective to his life. What an amazing sentence. Make me to hear joy and gladness so the bones you've broken rejoice. I would say, if you've really forgiven me, there won't be any broken bones. What kind of forgiveness is this? And in verses 10 through 15, David seeks useful restoration for service to God. He not only wants restored fellowship, he wants restored usefulness. So that I'm put back into a position where I am a benefit to you in the work that you are doing. That's where verse number 11 comes in. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. We don't read that in New Testament mentality, folks. We read that through Old Testament eyes. His anointing as king not talking about his salvation, he's talking about his service. So that if in verse 12, you restore unto me the joy of your salvation, then verse 13, I will teach transgressors thy ways. I will be useful of service. If 
If, if you, as you have judged me, will now forgive me and restore me, I will be restored to utility. If you will deliver me, verse 15, from my blood guilt, from my merit of a capital crime, then I will sing. Then I will sing. And you know, folks, it just might be big stretch that one of the reasons some of God's people don't have a song is because they have unforgiving spirits. They're not seeking to be right before the Lord on the basis of His claims. And in verses 16 through 19, and here's one of those places, folks, and we will see it again in a few weeks from another psalm, but here's one of those places where David reflects what appears to be an almost uncanny understanding. Almost my words, not Bible words, almost a New Testament perspective on Christian service. Verse number 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. And by the way, folks, remember that God had told David, you had done this secretly, I'm going to humiliate you publicly. And now David is writing a song about his sin. Let's put this, right? I mean, I, I, can't, I just can't envision. I can't envision saying to you, turn in your hymnal this morning and we're going to sing the song about my sin. But there it is, Psalm 51. God is not seeking mechanical offerings of animals. David understands that. The vast majority of Old Testament people didn't understand that, but David did. Thou desirest not sacrifices. That's what I would give. I know what you want. I know what you want. Verse 17. Sacrifice of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. You have despised my commandments, says the Lord. But you will not despise my broken heart, says David. Now, when you've coupled that kind of heart, a broken heart and a contrite spirit with obedience to the law, verse number 18 and 19. David is not trying to do an end run around the law. He's a man of the law. But he understands the heart of the law is not just simply the killing of an animal. So this is a part of his useful service that, that he can teach people Right? That he can minister to God's people, God's forgiveness as the voice of experience. And seek the blessing of the Lord because he is the leader of the people. Seek the blessing of the Lord in the leadership of the nation. So it is, folks, although again, the title would be Don't Think the Wrong Things About Forgiveness or something like that. It would be perhaps better titled David's perspective on what it means to be forgiven.
not a trying to undo the unpleasant things that have come, but trying to restore a fellowship and ministry to the Lord. So let me just make some observations this morning, some concluding notes and observations. First, if you find yourself in the position of observing the sin, and I don't necessarily mean the activity of the sin, but the somebody being publicized with their sin, brought into that and the sin of others, be let me just encourage you to be careful about presuming that you know their heart or their head. As I mentioned, for nine months, David appeared to be only, only cold-blooded, heartless, and calculating in dealing with this problem. But inwardly, he was perpetually racked with guilt and his sin was always in his face. And I would point out additionally that God is more than willing to accept David's confession and contrition even though from our perspective it's nine months too late. Right? I mean, David should have just collapsed at the, at the spot at what he had done, we would argue. And there are unfortunately some people whose harshness extends that if the apology is not done in the right time that we think it is appropriate, it is therefore invalid, but God took David's. So that would be for any of you who find yourself in the position of observing someone who is dealing with their own sin. Let me move secondly to all of us who are participants in sin, which is everybody, whatever we might think about how sinful we are. I made mention of the fact that God used the word pass through. Your sin is put away, 2 Samuel chapter 12. That has very serious, heavy theological implications. That is not just simply a mere dismissal. Let me just read to you quickly. I realize that I'm pushing the boundaries of my time this morning. But Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it comes, Romans 3.25, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through, his, through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. David, David's sins got passed through to Christ and laid upon him. And so God was able to forgive him. Your sins are put away is literally a, a real, as God would pass through the land. Here he was at this house, now he is at this house. David's sins were once on David, now they are on Christ. So that we understand, folks, that nobody gets away with their sin. Right? Sometimes we are all in a buzz because it appears that somebody has gotten away with something. 
But nobody gets away with their sin. It's either on Christ or on the sinner, ultimately. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities as a church and individuals. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying this. Console yourself at the end of the day. Nobody gets away with their sin. They will either bear its responsibility themselves or it will have been borne by Jesus Christ. But no sin goes unnoticed. And note, please, that one of the reasons God could say to David, I'm putting away your sin, you will live, is because Christ would die. If Christ wouldn't die, David would have to die. But Christ would die. And there is coming a day, folks, when the things that we normally associate with forgiveness, like the undoing of consequences, is going to come. There is coming a restoration. There is coming a restitution. There is coming a time when all the curse is undone. But look, I would just point this out to you. As we sit here this morning, those of us that are true believers have been forgiven. And yet we die. And we, right? But I'm forgiven. Yeah, and you'll die. And you'll weep. And you'll groan. I've forgiven you. But I haven't, I haven't wiped the chalkboard yet. That day is coming, but it, that day is not here. You live. You live because my son died. You are forgiven. So I would suggest, folks, that we have this perspective that if we are the offenders that our primary dimension of repentance certainly is to be made right with the person although there's no record that David ever tried to reconcile with Bathsheba he wed her or Ahithophel but he sought restoration of his God And folks, if you are the one who has been sinned against, there's just no magic biblical solution that will erase the memories or even take away the sting of what happened. There's just nothing that you're going to find in the scriptures to suggest that that is an option. There is grace, there is biblical doctrine, but there's no magic bullet that just takes it all away. Let's pray this morning.